Father, we do give Christ all the glory and praise. We worship You. We thank You for what You have accomplished through Him on our behalf. And so it is only because of Him that we can come and worship and bow down and sing together. Lord, we give You all the praise. So Lord, we pray that today we would honor what You have accomplished on our behalf by listening to Your Word read and preached with hearts of obedience with hearts that seek not just worship with our lips, but worship with our lives. I pray today that we would take Your Word into our hearts. Lord, You would enable by Your Spirit Your Word in us to cause obedience and change. Lord, this we pray especially for those who don't know You. We pray that they would hear the gospel, understand the truth of Christ crucified, Christ's life, Christ's resurrection, hear the gospel, understand it, believe it, have faith and repentance, and turn to Jesus for salvation. Lord, enable in them hearts that would believe today. All of this we ask in the name of Jesus, amen. You may be seated. Well, I'm so glad to be with you this week worshiping. What a wonderful time of singing and fellowship already. We are in our final week of this study, who we are. What is the identity of our church? What are the broad doctrines that define us? But what also, in the last couple weeks, what are those things that are distinctive about our church, things that we hold dear to our heart? We have said that we are, broadly speaking, we are Christian. We hold to certain beliefs that are true to Christianity, going all the way back to The early Christians, we are Protestant, meaning there are certain things about the Protestant Reformation with which we identify, we believe that are in Scripture and are true of salvation in particular. More specifically, getting to our distinctives, we are Reformed, and hopefully we learned last week this is not something that we need to be afraid about. It just simply means that we glorify God for His sovereignty and we accentuate the authority of His Word, the sufficiency of the Bible. That's a simple idea in terms of being reformed. And there's one final definition of who we are, and that is that we are Baptists. We are a Baptist church. And even though we recently replaced uh, in our name, our church name, the word Baptist with Bible, that was simply to make things broader, more inclusive. Uh, We're not in a very Baptist state, so to speak. Our state and city, there's not a lot of broad understanding of what Baptist means, and so really to help in terms of confusion that we sort of come every year. The pastors threw that out to the congregation uh, in the annual meeting this last year, and uh, the church voted almost unanimously to change our name to Makakilo Bible Church. But that does not mean we are no longer a Baptist church or we no longer affiliate with other Baptists. It's just a name change. Now, in the Q&A, which is going to follow this sermon, I'm going to get in what is our you know, hopefully we'll get time to, toward the end to get in what is, you know, the relationship with perhaps other Baptists, the Southern Baptist Convention, the Hawaii Baptist, and sort of extra biblical stuff. Some questions have come to me, and we'll hope to answer that stuff. But this is a worship service, and so today I'm not going to be focusing on those sort of extra biblical things, things that aren't in Scripture, preferences and things like that. What we're going to focus on is what does Baptist mean in terms of Scripture? So let me read to you a passage, a familiar passage, Matthew chapter 28, 
passage we usually are familiar with when it comes to evangelism, the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, 18 down to verse 20. So open your Bibles to Matthew 28, the very end of Matthew, and let me read to you this very familiar text. And Jesus is speaking to His disciples there who'd gathered after His resurrection. And Jesus says this, or, and it says this, verse 18, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." This is the Word of God. Now, I'm going to be referring, as we have in this sort of topical study, I'm going to be referring to other passages today, but that gives us a little preview, a little bit of a start of where we're going to be spending most of our time today. My message has two basic points, two basic truths that we draw from Scripture that define us as Baptists, and, and throughout the centuries, this is, these are two truths that the Baptists have uh, generally agreed upon in terms of as we read Scripture, what do we see? But let me begin by telling you a little bit of a story. For the first 300 years of Christianity, there was no mingling of nation and uh, religion in terms of Christianity. Now, there were nations that mingled religion. And of course, you have the Caesar cult where they would worship, actually worship Caesar, believing him to be at least part God. But in terms of Christianity, there was no mingling of church and empire or church and nation or church and state. And in this way, Christianity was much different from the old covenant people, right? The, the old covenant centered around Jewishness, around the nation of Israel. In order to follow Yahweh, for instance, you had to become a Jew. You may not become genetically a Jew, but you would become a Jewish proselyte, and you would actually come and be a part of, of the nation, be a part of this, this God people that we see all throughout the Old Testament. If you were not a Hebrew by birth, you could become a, 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 a proselyte, someone who followed Jewish truth. Now, just as we read it, the gospel goes to the nations. It's not that the gospel was not to be proclaimed to the nations of the Old Testament. It's just now it's going to the context of other nations, and God's people did not have to come and become Jewish and a part of a nation. They could stay right where they are in their nations, speaking their language, worshiping God in spirit and in truth. So, beginning with the apostles, the early Christians, they're hearing the, the great commission that Jesus gave there. We just read. They, they took the gospel to nations across the world. The apostles, the early Christians, took the gospel to different lands with different languages and different nations and different governments, even far beyond the scope of the Roman Empire. Now, you read the rest of the New Testament and read about that new covenant people. Christianity is multicultural, multinational. There, there are no commands for militant action. In other words, there's no command in the New Testament for, for Christians to take over the government. There are no, there are no uh, commands in the New Testament for Christians to sort of demand that people follow Christianity with the sword or the power of the government behind them. We don't see it as we see it in the Old Testament, as they're to go and, and take over a land. 
There's no action in the New Testament for the church to take over these governments or to force people to Christianity, certainly not like the Old Testament, and even more so, not like what we see in religions like Islam. Yes, there were times when Christians were persecuted. Yes, there were times when Christians were more free in those early centuries. The Christians were worshiping on their own. They were not political in nature. They, their churches abided in these places all over the world in different languages, and Christianity spread all over the world with no effort to combine Christianity with the government or the nations. Well, if you're a student in history, you may know that that changed in the 300s with the emperor Constantine. Constantine most likely made a calculated political decision by integrating the church or Christianity by, first of all, legalizing it and then integrating it into his empire. Now, we don't know his heart. We don't know if he genuinely converted to Christianity. Some people sort of think that he really truly believed in Christ and that there are things that sort of tell us that, well, maybe this was a genuine conversion. But if you read some other things, it seems like he held on to some paganism and there were, it was more of a political decision. Regardless of that, he sought to unify the church, Christianity, and the state. And he wanted to have this massive uh, sort of spiritual and physical or political authority all held by the state. You remember, he would go and conquer places or conquer armies and have them all baptized. And in his mind, not only were they becoming Christians, they were becoming Romans. They were joining his kingdom. They were part of this sort of spiritual, physical kingdom that he was developing. Well, as time went on and that idea began to spread, that became sort of the common understanding of Christians uh, for well over a thousand years. And it was sort of foreign to us. We're in America where the state and the church do not mingle. There is not a state meddling with religion. But for most of Christian history, beginning with Constantine, going forward over a thousand years, there is this unity of church and state. In fact, we studied some months ago the Protestant Reformation. And what was the empire called during the Protestant Reformation? The Holy Roman Empire. And we see this very convoluted mingling of state and church, and you have these, these people who are in the church that are leaders in the church having immense political power. And the same thing in terms of secular leaders in the government having immense religious power. Well, most of the Reformers, including Luther and Calvin and others, agreed with that idea. They didn't just want to be… they didn't uh, uh, disagree with the Catholic Church mentality of the mingling of church and state, only they didn't want it to be the Catholic Church, they wanted it to be the Protestant Church, and so they sort of worked that out in their own way in their different communities of sort of having a Protestant state-run church. They wanted what they call an authoritative magisterium, the authority sort of combining religion and and political authority, governmental authority, all into one. Now, the bottom line is, we disagree with them on this. In fact, I would say most Protestant Americans, even though we give great credit to the Protestant Reformers, most Protestant Americans, Protestant Christians, disagree with the Reformers on this as well. And I think it's a no small uh, for the no small reason, we give credit to the Baptists, the early Baptists who stood for religious freedom. Back in the founding of our country, 
Most of the religious leaders were Protestant, Reformed, Puritans, and Separatists. And many came here, and their idea was we're going to set up a government that has our religion as sort of the dominant state-run religion, state-integrated religion. But among those Separatists were Baptists. There were guys like Roger Williams and John Clark and John Leland. These early Baptists strongly believed that this new nation, there should be a separation of church and state. There should be religious freedom. When the Constitutional Congress was meeting and they were sort of deciding on a lot of these things and whether or not there would be this integration or whether they would support states having their own religions or whatever, when they began to meet, a bunch of Baptists got together, led by John Leland, who was the pastor of a, a church in Cheshire, Massachusetts, and they are a bunch of cattle farmers, and they took all their uh, milk cows, and they churned together a huge lump of cheese. In fact, it was a giant wheel of cheese weighing in at 1,200 pounds, and they, I suspect, rolled that cheese up to Philadelphia and gave it to Thomas Jefferson as a gift, sort of an early form of lobbying to say, listen, there's a lot of your constituents, there's a lot of people in this country that desire religious freedom. And we, and we beg of you that you would integrate religious freedom into the founding of America. Well, this very Baptist, separatist belief is indeed based in Scripture. Again, as we read Scripture, as you look at Scripture, there is not this reestablishment of the Old Covenant in a national way. There's not this Old Covenant style of, of, of nation church, that, that churches and people, religious people and Christians would, would live inside the context of a, of a secular government, a secular world, but they would flourish and, and grow in that. And that the gospel would go out and would reach people all over the world in all different kinds of nations, and these people were not commanded to take over their nations, to dominate their nations, but to abide inside the context of all these different nations and people groups. Well, that's the testimony of the New Testament, and that's why Baptists came to believe, as we read Scripture, we came to believe that we are indeed a free church. Well, this is point number one. If you're taking notes, what does it mean to be Baptist? Number one, we are a free church. Sometimes we use the word autonomous, but you probably don't use that word in your common vocabulary, but we are autonomous. And that means a couple of things. Number one, as I've ex given an example of, we are free from state authority. We are free from state authority. It's important to note, it doesn't mean that we're out from underneath the laws of our government. It's not like we can just do human sacrifices here at the church and say, hey, we can do whatever we want. We're out from under the law. No. We have to abide by the law of the state. What it means is the state does not have authority over our doctrine. The state does not have authority over our worship, over our leadership, the way we do church, the way we worship God. So long as we abide by the laws of the government, we are free to worship God how we want, as long as we don't break the laws. That's what it means we're a free church. We're not connected or there's no authoritarian dominance of our church. And, and let me just say a, a word about uh, the tax-free status of, of churches and religions. That, that is a, a bonus. We don't insist on that. If the government ever got to a point, and I, I suspect maybe in the future they will get to the point of, of not giving that blessing to churches and other religions, 
And our religion in, in particular, it seems like there's every year there's an effort to do that. There's all kinds of people out there that, that hate the fact that churches get tax breaks. And we recognize that as a blessing, but we don't hold on to that as though it's something that, that you know, we have to have. If it's taken from us, we'll pay our taxes just like everybody else. Now, that's not what we see. We don't see anything about that in Scripture. In fact, we just heard the words of Jesus moments ago, render to Caesar what are Caesar's. So, so if we get to that point, we, we recognize this is a blessing, the way they, they did that early in the days of our country, and we recognize it a huge blessing, but we don't uh, depend on that or make it some sort of big issue uh, that we have to stand on. This all has to do, being a free church, all has to do with our doctrine, our practice, our organization. It's not dominated by the government. They do not have the authority to come in and tell us when and where and how to worship, and particularly what our leadership is or our doctrine. And that freedom, historically, was provided to all Americans, whatever religion, thanks in no little way to the Baptists. This is sort of a, a, def, a defining thing for Baptist doctrine. It also means we are free from denominational authority denominational authority. Technically speaking, Baptists do not believe in denominationalism. Now, I know we consider the Southern Baptist Convention or Northern Baptist Convention or American Baptist Convention, we consider those and, and sort of from a governmental perspective, these are denominations, but Baptists technically do not believe in denominationalism, and that is there is this hierarchy structure what do Baptists believe? We believe as we look at the, the Bible, as we read Scripture, we don't believe that there is this hierarchy of authority, that this church answers to someone higher. No, this church answers, as we look at Scripture, individual churches answer to God directly. The churches, each one of them are, are independent, so to speak. We, we answer to God. We choose our own leadership. And sometimes the denominations will fund church plants or something like that, but again, ideally, churches operate completely separate. We as a church do not receive any funding or any money from some higher authority that funds salaries or anything like that. No, we are completely autonomous in terms of uh, ecclesiastical or denominational authority. And we believe this is what Scripture testifies. If you read Scripture, those early churches, we don't see some kind of hierarchy you know, leading all the way to Rome or leading all the way to somewhere else where there is someone sort of at the top of the church and everyone has to do uh, what the top of the church says. No, the churches are answering directly to God. We are autonomous in that sense. And so you say, well, what, how do denominations work? Well, Baptist denominations generally work in this way. It's just churches voluntarily affiliating with one another to accomplish things, just getting together to accomplish things. That's essentially what Baptists do. Now, again, from a sort of secular or, or governmental standpoint, they consider us denominations. That Baptist doctrine going all the way back to Scripture, we believe these churches, each one of them, answered directly to God. The elders at the church were chosen by the church, and they answer to God. We don't go through some sort of uh, hierarchy. All right, well, that's the first main thing that it means that we are Baptist. We are a free church. Number two, and we'll spend more of our time here. Being Baptist means we practice believers' baptism. We practice believers' baptism, or what some might call credo-baptism, belief-baptism. That's in contrast to pedo-baptism, which means infant or child-baptism. We practice believers' 
baptism. Now, there are four M's that's good to remember about believer's baptism, and these things will help you understand what is believer's baptism all about. Every once in a while, we get a phone call from someone in the community, and they say, okay, you're a Baptist church. Yeah, and they say, well, I have an infant that we just had, and we'd like for that, you know, it sounds like you really like doing baptisms. And uh, can we bring the infant up here to be baptized? Well, that's exactly the opposite of what we believe. What does it mean we believe in believers or credo baptism? Four M's. Write these down. Number one, mode. We believe that Scripture tells us there's a certain method or mode of baptism. What does the Bible say about the mode of baptism? Is it, is it sprinkling? Is it effusion? Is it pouring or dipping? Or is it immersion? where you dunk the entire body. Well, first, you look at the Greek word. What is the Greek word? It's baptizo, and it means to immerse. That word throughout history, throughout Greek history, that they used it to talk about dunking things entirely in water. In fact, just to give you a good example, something that it was commonly used in, it was in the dyeing business where they would dye cloth, and they would immerse that cloth entirely in a vat of dye. They would baptize that and bring it back out. It would be another color with a new identity, you could say. Now, the early... English translators that translated the Bible in English, most of them were sprinklers. They didn't immerse. They sprinkled babies. And so, in order to not ruffle any feathers, instead of translating the word baptizo into immerse or submerge, they transliterated. In other words, they made up a word from the Greek. They transliterated and made up this word that we have, baptism. But if you go back to the original, clearly it means to immerse. It means to submerge. Another thing, if you just read the New Testament and just walking through the New Testament, you find out very quickly they were immersing people. They weren't sprinkling or dipping or effusing people. They were immersing people. In fact, every single instance that the water and the amount of water is mentioned in relation to New Testament baptism, it seems to tell us that these people were being immersed. John the Baptist, who was baptizing people before Jesus, says that he was near Enon, near Salem, because there was plenty of water. He wouldn't need plenty of water. He wouldn't need to go to the Jordan River to baptize people if he was just sprinkling people or dipping water on top of people. No, he had to go to a place of much water because he was dunking them. When John baptized Jesus, it says very clearly, Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, Jesus came up out of the water. And clearly, Jesus was immersed. When Philip led the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ, he didn't just immediately sprinkle him. They go a little bit, and the eunuch sees some water and says, here's some water. What prevents me from being baptized? Clearly, uh, he didn't think he would just be sprinkled, or he, he finds some water. He finds a place where he could be dunked if he were going to be sprinkled, Philip could have done that much earlier. Now, let me just say this. The most honest of our infant baptizing brothers and sisters and friends we respect very dearly, the most honest ones admit that in Scripture it seems like they're dunking people, they're immersing people. R.C. Sproul, a dear late uh, pastor, one of my heroes of the faith, R.C. Sproul, admits this. I read his little pamphlet on baptism. Of course, he believes in baptizing infants, being a Presbyterian. He admits that in the Bible, as it seems like, they're dunking people, they're submerging people. But he says, he goes on to say, but I think we have the freedom to sprinkle as well. Now, why would he say that? Well, because he baptizes infants. You can't dunk infants. Well, I suppose you can, but you shouldn't dunk infants. 
And so he has a, you know, he sort of changes his meaning of, and my question is like, why not just do what they did in the New Testament? If it's clear that they're dunking people, why not dunk people? Why not submerge people? Why not immerse people? Well, this brings me to the next M. It's the word moment. When should a person be baptized? At birth? Well, throughout Scripture, again, read the New Testament, baptism is connected to a person's conversion, when they have faith in Christ and repent. He has faith, he repents of his sin, and commits his allegiance to Christ publicly and formally through baptism. He he joins the others who have done the same thing, and he changes his identity. He becomes a new person, and he comes out. Now, I've identified with these people who also profess Christ. Acts 2, verse 38, repent, Peter says, first Christian sermon, repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. People repent of sin, they have faith in Christ, and they are baptized. Same thing we see in Acts chapter 8, same thing we see in Acts chapter 11, same thing we see in Acts chapter 16, and so on and so forth. When people come to faith in Christ, when they are converted, that is when they are baptized. That is when they are immersed. On top of this, let me ask you a very simple question. In the Bible, how many babies are baptized? Zero. We don't have one instance of infants being baptized. And if you think about it, this, this is pretty startling. If, if it's like circumcision, which is what our Presbyterian brothers and sisters and others say about baptisms, it's a, it's a perfect parallel to circumcision. Well, we have plenty of instances where babies are circumcised over and over again. You'd think that in that early church, if, if they saw that as a direct parallel to baptism, you'd think we'd have at least one example of infants being born and then being baptized. But we don't have one, not one. Now, I know that some Presbyterians at this point say, well, doesn't Acts say a couple of times that uh, someone believed, a Philippian jailer, for instance, believed and his whole household was baptized? Well, let me introduce you to a word. Maybe you've heard this before, maybe you haven't. It's the word eisegesis. Exegesis, maybe you've heard that word. Exegesis is gleaning truth from Scripture, the truth that is clearly laid out in a passage or a text, and you take that truth. It's limited to what that text says. You don't add in other truths that you think are there. You, you simply limit yourself to what that passage conveys and nothing else. Eisegesis is taking other assumptions and inserting them into a text. In order to know what God has said, we should focus our attention not on eisegesis. We should avoid every time we're being eisegetical and just focus on exegesis, taking truth directly from Scripture and not adding to it. Well, we don't know. As we read, I think there's two passages that talk about whole households being baptized. We don't know if they had infants there or not. It doesn't say. In fact, my household and probably many of your household, every single person in my family is at that mental state in life where they can't understand the gospel and believe. So we don't know that these household, households necessarily included infants. So to assume that there were infants being baptized at those moments, I think that's a perfect example of eisegesis, reading back into the text things that you assume. And then you build a whole doctrine and practice off this eisegesis, it makes it even worse. The bottom line is this, folks. If you were uh, to give a Bible to a remote tribe that's on an island, and they read the New Testament, and you ask them the question after that, are babies being baptized? They would say no. 
They would say, no, it takes a lot of jumping through hoops. It takes a lot of uh, logical system that you have to put in place and impose upon Scripture for you to come to the conclusion that infants should be baptized. Baptism is tied to a person's spiritual baptism, his regeneration, and then profession of Christ. What they do in baptism is a testimony to what God has done in their hearts already. And so, we believe the moment of baptism is after salvation. When someone has come to faith and repentance, not before, not as infants, but after salvation, when they come to faith in Jesus Christ. Well, this brings us to a third M you want to write down, and that is the word meaning. Baptism is a testimony not to a provision of some covenant people, an umbrella of blessing. No, it is a testimony to the gospel. The message of the gospel is in baptism. The the profession of baptism is a profession of the gospel. It's a profession that a person has believed that they die with Christ and are raised a new person. They believe they've taken on a new identity and have a new nature, that that old man is, is gone away. He's been nailed to the cross, as it were. And like Jesus was raised from the grave, they raise up from their baptism as a testimony to the gospel. If you go back to the origins of baptism, the practice of, of baptism, it actually was something that was done before Jesus, even before John the Baptist. It was practiced among some Jewish rabbis who would teach, and in order to signify that you had listened to this rabbi and wanted to follow him, you would join them through baptism. You would join that group of people and that rabbi through baptism, through immersion. If you had a community led by a certain rabbi or a certain teacher, and you wanted to to follow them, you would be immersed in water, you would have this new identity, and you would affiliate with this group of people and with that particular Rabbi, the idea is that you're washed, you're washed of your old way of life, you're cleansed from that, your whole body from head to toe, and now you join this group as a new person, as a clean person, as someone with a new identity. Well, when God sent John the Baptist to the earth, God told John to take up this ritual as something that he would do in order to prepare people for the coming of the Messiah. God told John to practice baptism, Matthew chapter 3, and other parallels in the other Gospels about John going around and baptizing. This is why he got the name, John the Baptist. He was to preach the Gospel. He was to foretell the arrival of the Messiah, and those who believed John's message would be baptized. They would, they would profess their belief in what John was preaching, and they would join that community of faith who, who anticipated the arrival of the Messiah. That baptism signified their allegiance to the message of John, the, the message of the Gospel, and their commitment with all of those who had believed the same. Their joining of that group of people who had believed the same. They essentially were saying, I profess this truth, and I am with those of you who have also been baptized. I join this family of faith. We don't know this for sure, but it's possible that John had come across or had some interaction with a group called the Essenes who also did this from time to time. People would join them in this way, but regardless of whether he was associated with them or not, this was a known religious ritual of that day. It's something that people understood and would understand. You're changing your allegiance. You're a new person, and you follow this group of people. You're joining this cohort of people who believe this particular rabbi. 
John's arrival, his use of baptism was much the same. He taught this, and people in droves by the thousands believed his message. They would be baptized, thus identifying themselves with the message of the gospel, the arrival of the Messiah, and with John and all his followers. Well, the disciples picked up right where John left off. Only their message included the fact that the Messiah has indeed arrived, that the king has, kingdom has indeed come and Christ is here. And so if you're to believe in Christ, if you're to follow us, and you're to listen to this gospel and believe in Him, you identify with us. You are baptized. So when the early church started, and many, many thousands of people heard the gospel and believed it, what did they do? They baptized them. There in the giant pools, there's all these pools up in Jerusalem, and you had thousands of people on the day of Pentecost receiving Christ, accepting the gospel, believing it, having faith. And I suspect in those giant pools, the pool of Bethesda and many others, they would have baptized these people over a period of several days where they, thousands of people's, people were baptized in these great pools. Again, this was a testimony to their faith in Christ, their testimony to the truth of the gospel, the testimony, their affiliation with the apostles there and with all those other people there in Jerusalem who had believed the message of the gospel. Now, sometimes people get confused at this point in terms of the message of the gospel. I had a friend some years ago who told me that a lady came to his church, and uh, she told him a great testimony of how she came to know Christ. She said, you know, just a couple months ago, I was totally not a Christian, and I just decided to pick up the Bible and start reading. And she said, I read this Bible over and over again, especially the Gospels, and I came to faith in Jesus Christ. I, I turned from my sin. I want to follow Christ. And she said, as reading this, just like I said about the, the tribe on a desert island, and reading this, I knew I should be baptized. So she said, I went to the nearest church, and I told them that I had become a Christian, and I wanted to be baptized. And she said, and they obliged. They, they took me in. The following Sunday, they baptized me. And uh, I kind of figured out this is sort of a weird church. So I'm coming here to become a member of the church, but I've been saved and I've been baptized. And he began to ask questions. He found out the church, quote-unquote, that he went to was a Mormon church. Now, the Mormon church believes... A, something weird about baptizing people for the dead, and B, they believe something more in line with the Catholic Church, that in baptism there's sort of God's grace coming to you salvifically, which is not the gospel. My friend said, you know, ma'am, you have the, uh, the, the meaning right. It's, it's after salvation, it's, or you have the, the, the mode right. It's immersion. You have the moment right. It's after salvation, but you don't have the meaning right. What was professed when you were baptized was not the gospel. It was not the message of salvation. And so, a lady, you need to be baptized. And she happily uh, consented. She was happy to be baptized and, and uh, announced. There's a sense in which when you're baptized, when someone is baptized biblically, it is almost like the preaching of the gospel. It's a sermon, essentially, preached of salvation. It's a gospel message. So we have to get the meaning right, the meaning being the gospel of Christ and the fact that you are now becoming a part of this group who also believe the gospel and follows Christ. Well... This brings us to the final M of baptism, membership. Now, the idea of church membership began with none other than Jesus Himself. When we get back to Matthew, uh, we're going to finish up chapter 16, and we'll 
make our way to chapter 18 of Matthew, and this is where Jesus introduces the idea of membership to a local body of believers. Jesus tells His disciples, essentially, how do you deal with someone who has committed to Christ, who ostensibly has been baptized and joined your cohort, but refuses to repent? And it's not about sin, right? I mean, all Christians sin. It's not, hey, you sin and you kick them out. It is someone who does not live a repentant life. It's someone who rejects the instruction of the church, who rejects the other Christians, who encourage this person to, to follow Christ. They've made an announcement. They've pledged their allegiance to Christ. They've made that vow, so to speak, to join this group. And what do you do when they stop living according to that commitment? Matthew chapter 18, beginning at verse 15, go tell him of his fault between you and him alone. So start out, you go alone, and you talk to this person about their sin. If he listens to you, in other words, if he repents and responds, you've gained a brother. In other words, you're you're growing closer to this person. So you go to him alone, you ask that person to repent, turn from their sin, and live according to that commitment that they made publicly and and formally before the people and joining them through baptism. If he doesn't listen, Jesus says, take it to the church. Clearly, in Jesus' mind, this is not take it to the universal church and announce this to all Christians everywhere, the sin of this person. No, he's saying take it to your local body. Take it to the church. And that that word church actually is not a reference to a large, massive group of people. It's a reference, the word church is a reference to the called out ones. It's an assembly that refers back to a, a group in a location, an assembly of people, the called out ones in a certain location. Take it to that local church body, and if they're unable to convince that person not to sin, then what do you do? You excommunicate him. You put him out of the church. So clearly Jesus believed there were people who were officially and formally and, and known and understood that they're a part of the church and people who are officially not a part of the church. In Jesus' mind, anyway, there was this idea that there were those who were clearly, it wasn't ambiguous, it's not, well, I don't know, yeah, I don't. no, it was clear who was in the church and it was out of the church. Paul would go on to say that we ought to show grace and kindness to outsiders. What does that mean? People outside the church. There were those in the church. There were those outside the church. You cannot do what Jesus says here if you don't believe in some form of church membership. So Jesus believed in what Paul would call, we heard this in in, uh, 1 Corinthians 12 moments ago, Paul would call them members. And Paul says members of a body, unless you think that body is the universal body of Christ, you have to understand the context of 1 Corinthians 12, and that is there was all this dissension in that particular local church about gifts. And Paul is saying, listen, you're a part of a body. He's not talking about membership to the generic universal body of Christ. He's talking about a body at a local church and how all these gifts come together and on a local church level. So it is Paul that talks about membership, And he's going off and sort of forwarding the idea of Jesus from the very beginning, this idea of those who join that church. Each person in that church is a member of that body. There are no lone lone rangers in Christianity, people out on their own sort of doing their own thing. Everyone is to be a part, officially and formally, a part of a church body. Again, these are things that we find as Baptists, we find directly from Scripture. 
Well, where do people formally profess and formally and publicly join a body of believers? It's in baptism. That's when they do that. It goes back to the original idea of baptism with John and then with Jesus and the disciples, that early church. They formally profess Christ. They formally join this group of people. They become a part of them with baptism. Now, you might find some exceptions to this rule. The Ethiopian eunuch, as I mentioned before, he might be uh, an exception. And I think there might be rare occasions where someone is baptized not into a church But almost every time we see baptism, it is associated with being a part, committing to not just Christ, pledging allegiance to, taking a vow not just to Jesus Christ, but to a local body of believers who will keep them accountable and do exactly what Jesus says back in Matthew chapter 18, that there is this discipleship, which is related to the word discipline, if they don't continue to follow Christ. There's not all these just random haphazard baptisms and no formal church or no formal anything. No, it's very clear that there's insiders and outsiders. There's membership to church. And, and when these people fail to live up, they are cast out of the church. And that includes pastors as well. Being kicked out of the church for not believing and following and staying true to the commitments they made at baptism. Now, we know that some people are baptized outside of the church, maybe at a different church. And that's as time goes on, we... You know, that's one of the reasons why we interview people who want to become members. We want to find out if they've been baptized in a proper way, with a proper mode, at the proper moment, and with a proper meaning. And we'll accept those baptisms, not in our particular church, but we accept that. But then we have, what do we do on Membership Sunday? We have a reading of a covenant. We have this formal, official joining of this body. Certain commitments are made. I'm going to live a certain life. I'm going to follow Christ, and I submit to the leadership, and I submit to the leadership not just of the leaders of the church, but to the church body. I'm a part of this, and I'm going to live my life a certain way. Well, this is sort of the happy side of church membership, all the encouraging and the love and and warmth that you receive from being a member of a church. There's also the sad side. Uh, Every single year, you guys don't know this, but every single year I have this dubious task of notifying people who have failed in terms of their commitment to Christ. Most of the time, it's people who just don't show up anymore, and we can't get a hold of them, and we've called them again and again and tried to reach out and encourage them to be a part, but they just don't anymore. And so I have this horrible task, and you can ask Ryan anybody, I hate this part of my job, but I have to contact these folks and say, hey, what's going on? And it's sad to say a lot of times, sometimes it works, a lot of times it doesn't. And so we have to do exactly what Jesus tells us to do and remove them from the church. We have to ask others of you to help us convince this person. We have to tell it to the church, help others come to this person and convince them to come back in. And if that doesn't work, then we just have to say, you know, you can no longer be a member of our church. You're not keeping up this commitment that you made initially at baptism, but the covenant you made with our church. It carries through with that baptismal commitment. If you join our church, it is on the basis of your profession of faith, on, on your public confession, your commitment to the body of Christ, and not just the generic body of Christ, but to this local body of Christ, we take very seriously that commitment. And we want to provide you all the strength and encouragement. We want to provide you the opportunity to grow and mature and express your gifts. And we want to provide you these things. There's every, every person has different details and different things in their life, but we try to, as best we can, support you and help you grow in this context of our 
church. And then you get to this point where you read this covenant, you make this formal covenant, much like you would at baptism, and you become an official part of our church. It's almost like marriage vows, right? You would never, young men, you would never tell your girlfriend, you know, I, I, I want all the blessings of marriage, including you-know-what, but I ain't going to marry you. I ain't going to stand before people and vow. Well, that, that girl ought to drop that idiot immediately. But there are people who treat the church that way, right? I want all the blessings. I want the fellowship. I want the encouragement. I want the strength. I want this. I want that. But I'm not going to make some kind of vow and be a part of this thing and be accountable to live a certain life. But that's exactly what we see in Scripture. These people joined through baptism. They became a part of this thing, usually a local body. They became a part of that local body. And if they did not meet the requirements, the, the, the commitments they made in that formal profession, they were to be cast out. Our joy as a church... And again, even though I have that dubious task of writing members or contacting members, uh, by and large, you guys are so faithful and so good, and you keep your commitment, and it's a huge blessing. But we take it seriously. We take that membership covenant very seriously because it is sort of parallels what would be happening at baptism. Well, let me wrap this up. This would be the application, wouldn't it? If you're not yet a believer, if you not had, have yet had faith, if you not yet fully surrendered to Christ... Count the cost. It's not just saying I intellectually affirm or emotionally affirm things about Jesus. It is I'm going to follow Christ, and I'm going to surround myself with people who are going to help me follow Christ and keep me accountable to follow Christ. Count the cost, Jesus says, about being His disciple. Count the cost. And maybe that appeals to you. Maybe you're someone who is not a believer, and, and, and you want to be a believer, and you want that support system and that love and that encouragement and that growth, I would, I would tell you today, repent, have faith, be baptized, make that profession, make that commitment. And of course, this applies even to believers, maybe even believers in our church. How, how is your commitment? Would you say that you're carrying that out individually in, in the church as being a part, an integral part of this body of believers? Are you exercising your gifts? Are you encouraging others and being encouraged? Are you being discipled? Are you discipling others? Well, let's pray that God would give us the desire and ability to do these things all for His glory. Father, we thank You so much for what You've given us. We thank You for the fact that You've given us instruction about how to live. And Lord, um, we see great importance to this idea of baptism. And as Baptists, we profess this idea of membership, this, the message of the uh, and meaning of baptism. Lord, the picture of baptism, of dying to our old self, washing away the, the dead man and the sin, and coming up newly identified with Christ and with your people. Help us take these things seriously. Help, we live, help us live these things out. As always, Lord, I pray for those who don't know you. Give them the grace and desire to know you and to profess you, to be a part of your people. Lord, I know that these things for modern man are awkward rituals like the Lord's table and especially being baptized and going underwater and coming up. But Lord, this is such a visual picture of the gospel. And Lord, I pray that we would believe the gospel in such a way that it would convict us to do these very things. So Lord, if there are those out there that are hesitant, maybe perhaps hesitant about the level of commitment, hesitant about the, the ceremony of baptism and going out to the ocean and being dunked and coming back up, Lord, I pray that they would see the, the glory of 
the gospel and your church, your body, Jesus, and they would submit to this wonderful ritual. But all of us need to live up to our commitment as Christians. And so first of all, we look inwardly. We look at our own hearts. We look at our sin. And as Pastor Jim prayed earlier, we confess this sin to you. We want to continue to confess and continue to grow, live, living repentant lives. But Lord, more than that, we want to be a part of your body, your local body expressed here at Makakilo Bible Church. So help us do this faithfully. Help us keep those covenants, those commitments that we've made to you and others. Help us live our lives wholly before you. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, if you'll stand with me. And don't forget, here in a moment, we'll do our Q&A. Here in about 10 or 15 minutes, we'll have our Q&A time. Let me read this benediction to you. This is inspired by what we read in 1 Corinthians 12, or what Pastor Jim read. Now may we go into the world with the gospel on our lips. May we find great joy in joining together for this great cause. And may we, as many different members of one body, represent the truth and actions of Jesus Christ to a needy world. Amen. Amen.